If you speak with people in crypto, the future of money is on blockchain. Our guest today is Jakub, the renowned managing director at Kraken. One of the major influences at Lazada. A company acquired by Alibaba Group for $1 billion. Many people that get involved in crypto are thinking about it as an easy scheme to make money. Something that you believe in that most people would not agree with. Or whenever you're getting into crypto, the first thing that you have in your mind is that how do you develop judgment? That's a very serious question. It's not that easy to frame it with just one simple answer. I don't think it's one solution that fits all. So how can I optimize my body and my mind? The approach that I think it's best is just to try different things and see how they stick. Another way to make better decisions is basically something that we call biohacking. Yeah. That's actually a very common theme amongst entrepreneurs and people who work long hours and huge pressure. And I know you've been through this process. You're like me, a big fan of biohacking, so give us all your secrets. Welcome everyone, this is Kevin from the Yield Lab podcast. Our guest today is Jakub, the very first employee at Lazada, a company acquired by Alibaba Group for $1 billion. You're also the man who brought Revolut, the 33 billion fintech unicorn to APAC, so Asia Pacific. And now that we've covered the basics, on to today's episode. Jakub, why don't we start with some context about your background? What are the key turning points in your life that define who you are today? Well, Kevin, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Really looking forward to our conversation. I think there's, there's been a few turning points that when I look retrospectively, they were defining for, for what, what came next in my, in my career. Um, I think I definitely wouldn't be here if I wasn't writing my master thesis. Uh, you know, I was doing my master's in Spain and I was writing my master thesis about early stage startup financing. I learned about rocket internet and this is how I ended up in, in Lazada. Basically, I was, I moved from Europe to Asia and what I thought is going to be just a few months and a nice experience to have just after business school to, to build a company on the other side of the world has actually become a career. So retrospectively looking at it, it was definitely one of the, one of the defining moments. I think the other one was, was joining Revolut in 2017. It was a perfect time to join a fintech company at that point of time where fintechs were just starting. It was extremely lucky to join Revolut at that point as well, a company which is probably one of the highest valued fintech companies in the world right now. That was definitely a turning, turning point just because I've, I've experienced this hyper growth, as you've mentioned, of, of Revolut, but I also started really enjoying building companies in, in fintech. Fintech was a new industry for me at that point of time. And the next turning point is definitely Kraken. So just getting my crypto 101. I learned a little bit about crypto during my time at Revolut. I knew I wanted to stay in fintech after Revolut and the bet that I wanted to make is within fintech, what would be the area that I would feel that would be growing the fastest, just like Neo Banking has been growing. It was a part of one of the biggest crypto companies out there and learned a lot about industries. So, so these were probably the key turning, turning moments. And it's just very interesting to see how one experience is just coming from the previous one and how it all started from Lazada. And, and basically the common theme is just like, I really enjoy building companies and being at the right place at the right time. So you started, I think, in Lazada in 2013, in Kraken in 2020, which is basically seven years later. Can you tell us how your mindset has evolved between when you started in this first company that was very successful. And then when you started at your latest employer, seven years later, so how, how has your mindset evolved regarding building and blitz scaling these tech companies? I think it was, uh, it's also interesting to look at, especially when the, what's happening currently when it comes to, to, to access of capital and venture funding and how the past decade has looked like. Lazada was basically my first employer. And so what I could initially bring to the table when I joined Lazada was that I was probably one of the hardest working guys there. And I was pretty analytical. So I had very little experience in building companies and working in other places. So I was literally like an open book and I was absorbing everything as, as fast as I could and, and trying to add value wherever I could to basically be a, be a solid part of it. So, so it has evolved quite a bit the, the things that I had with me at Lazada have definitely stayed, but you definitely appreciate you get exposed to many different problems. Your decision-making process and skills are actually becoming better with more data points that you've seen, with more decisions that you've made and, and more things that you've, that you've experienced. So I would say that, that my decision-making skills have evolved when it comes to making better decisions faster. 
and just just creating this this environment where you're you're acknowledging that you might not be always the right person to know everything and that it's also good to to get second thoughts from other people and also surround yourself with people that are complementing your skills. I think one of the things, you know, in the earlier in your careers, and many people think that they actually know everything and they can solve all the issues. But later in your career, you really try, you really understand that you're very good at some things and there are some things that you're okay, but there are some people that are better than you. And I think what were really good decisions, and especially when it comes to, you know, general business building come from, is that so you just need to put together a great team that complements your strengths and, and weaknesses in order to really create something that it's, that it's great. So I think this is definitely something that I've learned along the way, understanding exactly what I like doing, what I'm good at, understanding what other people are better than I am. And then when you put all these pieces together, I think this is a recipe that kind of increases the odds for success. Can you tell us a bit about the decision-making process in these startups? Like how decentralized is it? How, is it? how much is it given to you or to the different employees, especially early on versus how much centralization there is? I think the beauty of working with earlier stage companies, and I think this is also something that, that when I first experienced it, I really liked it, is that you need to be good at operating in chaos. You need to understand how to make decisions fast based on the limited data that you actually have. So I think that was something that really drawn me into this, the early stage venture building is that at a relatively young age, I had a scope of responsibilities that was pretty big uh, and I had to figure it out. And I think this is, this is something that you appreciate if you want to be doing more. You, when you join a bigger company, you're just going to be a, a part of a very well oiled machine that already has processes that work and you're responsible for a, a certain small aspect of it. And in early stage, there's no processes. So you need to figure that out and you're responsible for a little bit larger area. So, so I think this is something that I really like, that I really enjoyed. Something that I, I don't think is for everyone, but, but it is definitely is for people that, that want to learn fast, that want to also enjoy the failures that they come through. And I think that really the most important point is to be able to look at failures as an additional data point and quickly adapt and adjust. So, so it's definitely a little bit more stressful compared to a, probably a normal career, but it can give you a lot of joy if you like this chaotic environment and an environment where you're actually giving a lot of responsibilities. If you look at the last 10 years, what did you wish you had known and done differently when you were building Lazada back in 2013? I think the most important learning that I had, and again, like Lazada was 10 years ago, the world looked completely different than it looks right now. And it's also great to see how, the com how well the company was, is doing right now from their early times in 2013 and 2012. I think the most important thing that I've really learned is that it's in something that I've seen myself is that it takes different types of people to really help the company grow from zero to one and from 100, from one to 100. And then it is to optimize a company from 100, from, you know, 1000 to 1005. Uh, I think this is definitely something that I've seen myself and I've seen how you know, the generalists that worked very well in earlier stage setups are probably not the great guys to, to their work and optimize very big companies and vice versa. Hiring people that are coming from corporate backgrounds, not in all cases, but in, in, in general, this is something that I've seen that if someone is a professional that is specialized in a respective field and they need to suddenly become a generalist that is handling all this uncertainty and chaos. And earlier stages, it's it's sometimes it's not the best fit. So one of the one of the key things that I've seen is especially in these early days, it just takes a little bit different breed of people to really help the company, people that are just okay with chaos, okay with uncertainty, that are jack of all trades and that can figure things out. And then you have, you know, while the once the company already reaches a certain point, you just need to optimize for hiring specialists. And I think this is a good framework to think that what got you here to a certain stage is not something that is going to get you get you further. That's a really interesting point, actually, because there is the more traditional view, and it's kind of more depending on geography. You know, you, for example, in the UK or in the US, you would go to do a university in philosophy. And then you'll be able yeah. to work in investment bank or in a startup. Whereas depending, I don't know, in Switzerland or other places or probably in Asia, there is more for correlation between what you studied and what the, I mean, the expectation of the employer. So when you're building your yeah. teams, how do you think about that? 
Do you actually seek for people who don't have previous experience, for example, for Revolut in banking because you're trying to you know, move past Brexiting differently? Or do you actually look for people who have deep experience in the field? Or is it something that comes later on when the startup is more developed? Yeah, so I think it really depends on, on the stage where a particular company is at the moment. But, you know, the main question to ask is, you know, w- what are the problems that this person is going to help me solve? And obviously experience is just a part of the equation. I think the general problem-solving ability is probably the key element that I would look like, I would look at when it comes to building a team. And whether what school they went to, what companies they worked at is just an additional, additional data point for me to understand what kind of problems they could have solved in the past. So I think it would be, I think it would be wrong to say that I would just look at, at university degrees or previous employers just to critically assess right away if this is the right fit or not. It's just for me, it would be a data point that would then help me understand what kind of journey, what kind of environment the person has worked at what kind of problems they face and they solved and how well they can potentially do in this new role. And I think all of these things kind of increase or decrease the risk that the person is a good fit. But it's very hard to say that some things are correlated one-to-one. For example, if you worked at an early stage company, that's right now you're going to be a fantastic fit just because we're in the earlier stage setup. I think it's much more nuanced and all of these things are just the additional data points that allow you to really see if this is going to be the right fit for a particular position. What would you advise a 17 or 18 years old person who is wondering whether they should go to university, you know, in 2023, can all learn all this stuff online. You can sign up to Upwork, you can sign up to Fiverr and start to work either for free, either for a few bucks for some companies. What would you actually recommend people to do in today's world where we have this kind of academic inflation, you know, these papers that kind of too many people get? To, have, to maximize their chances of getting a job, especially in a startup that's kind of more interesting and fast pacing. Yeah, so I, I would definitely not try to give one advice that fits all for any 17 or 18 year old. So, but one thing that I would definitely recommend is just to try many things and not to close any doors. I think it's important that, you know, for some, some people, it might work not to go to uni and go straight and start working. But with age, these kind of doors are closing. If you don't start studying at a certain age, the odds are lower that you're going to be picking that up in the future. So there's always a good, si- good time for certain things. And obviously, with as you mentioned, academic inflation, it's, it's not a prerequisite to really get certain jobs. But it's also a good question to ask at that point of time would be, how do I ensure that I not, do not close myself any doors? Uh, and maybe that for some things that I would like in the future, maybe a university degree will be actually helpful. So I think what a mental model for this would be much more about being able to try as many things as possible, seeing what you like, having a, a certain thesis for yourself about where you would like to go and how to reverse engineer that. And, and then, yeah, and then basically seeing with time, if this is a right or wrong thesis and adapt along the way. I think if I followed the thesis that I had in, when I was 17 and stuck to it, I would be an auditor at this point of time, but my thinking has changed quite frequently since then. And my career has taken different tracks. So I think that adaptability and being able or being exposed to different jobs or different types of companies or different activities. And then really seeing if you're liking it or not is probably the, something what I would recommend just because it's so easy to pick up new things and new jobs right now. I think you're figuring out something that you like and something that you're good at. And I think when you have this concept, it's something that increases the odds for success. So you've been working very close to founders. You're also investing in an advisor. And we see these, you know, big headlines, these company is a unicorn, this company is very successful, but people don't see what's happening internally and pretty much often, if not most of the time, it's a big mess. What are the biggest risks that founders do not think about when starting a company? And one I could probably mention, because having built some companies myself, is the founding team issues. You know, where you pretty much every time have a founder or more who basically end up paving the ship sooner or later, like what are the few things that you would tell as an advisor, you know, a a bunch of founders like, Hey, like you think that this might be what's, what might kill your company, but actually be careful about these things that no one ever talks about, because these are the ones that actually kill companies early on. 
Well, I think that thing that kills the companies the most, from my observation, is, is, is not making something people like or even better, they, something that people love. I think focusing on, on the particular solutions that you have in mind and building a product around it is, is something that is probably the biggest threat to the survival of the company and not really understanding what is the bigger problem that you're trying to solve with, with this. So I think that the key component here is whenever you're a founder and you're creating this or you're making this very big bet for yourself, making sure that you're actually, you have a vision for a particular problem that you want to solve and not just creating, you know, a bunch of products left and right, not really thinking about a broader vision or a bigger problem that you're solving. So I think starting from the product, and I think this is probably one of the key components because this is the fundament and the basis on which you're building the company. It's probably one of the, the most important decisions and most important calls that you need to make in order to make a good company. And the second thing that I definitely want to stress out, and you've kind of alluded to that, is everything around hiring. I think definitely fire, finding the right co-founder is one of the, the biggest decisions to, to make. Just as important it is to find these, you know, few first hires that literally can make or break your company. I think nailing and understanding the importance of, of early stage hiring is, is, I think, not something that, that really people, that people put as much attention as they should. I think when you look back at the very successful companies and the initial hires that, that they have, you can really see that a lot of the success came from these people and how good they were and how much, how much extra they've added to the company. We've seen, we see a lot of company XYZ, ex-employees mafias, where you see that the company, yeah. the people have done very successfully in, in, in the companies that they were, they were part of early stage teams. And then they've gone to do other ventures and start other companies. And you can see how, how successful they are, you know, in the second iteration of their careers or third iteration, and they become serial founders and entrepreneurs. Do, I think do you, having for, that for those people, do you think it's the um, part of being of this culture and learning very quickly that made them become very successful as founders afterwards? Or do you think that they were actually all amazing entrepreneurs initially? And so the best people were chosen without necessarily knowing that they were the best people. And that's why naturally they went on to build other companies. Yeah, I think it's, I don't think they were best entrepreneurs already. I think they were a good, I think they had some trait that would make them successful entrepreneurs in the future. And they were just exposed to tough problems and exposed to a company that is growing at hyper growth, which eventually also helps you become a better founder in the future. You become a better operator initially that helps you become a better founder later on. And it was a combination of having the right trade, being able to learn quickly and adapt to new things, and then seeing yourself, uh, what does it really take to, to build a successful company? And I think just a combination of this rapid learning and exposed to, to, to the learnings that comes from being a part of a company that is split scaling, show you that, that you actually can have a playbook to do it yourself. And just by, just because it's not something that it's written in, in, in any books, it's an experience that it's a, a extremely valuable. And because you've been a part of it, you've seen it firsthand. It also gives you a good fundament to do it yourself. So I think it was a combination of getting these very high quality data points, being exposed to these problems and these companies that grow so fast, and also being able to become a better operator and then later on a better founder. Have you ever been part of a company that failed as a builder or as an investor? And if yes, hopefully yes, what did not work out? So I, I have to say not yet, you know, fortunately, not yet. And the way that I think about employment or angel investments, it's actually pretty similar. It's just with one kind of investing or, or trying to catch a particular wave with money. And when you're looking at employment, you just do the same exercise just with your own time. So I haven't had yet any failure when it comes to picking the wrong course in a race, whether when it comes to investment or when it comes to my time as, as an employee, but who knows, statistically it will probably come, but I'll try to try to minimize my, my risk. And just by really evaluating these opportunities on both sides, I think evaluating investment opportunities where sometimes it feels like it feels very tempting to increase your risk as an investor, just because you have the asymmetry of returns. But I'm a pretty cautious on the investment side and same thing when it comes to being an employee, you know, doing your due diligence and really understanding, you know, the problem that the company is solving, how big is the market, 
how good is the team that has actually built this company. And really having that thinking kind of decreased, the, decreased my risk. And I have to say that, you know, especially when it comes to my, my, my first work experience with Lozano, it was pure luck. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I wanted to ask, pure... I wanted to ask, what's the mental framework there to evaluate? Because you don't have any internal information. You don't yeah. know, you can go check, you can maybe do some interviews or ask them some questions, go online. But at the end of the day, you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. You don't know. And I could be wrong. My, my mental model has changed with time because I learned much more things about what to really pay attention to. I, and I didn't have this mental model early in my career. I just wanted to be a part of a company that is, that is growing fast or is trying to build something bigger. I knew about the company that is incubating it. And like at the same time, I could have picked a wrong industry by the same, by the same company where they incubated companies that were not as successful as, as Lazada. There were some companies that, that were incubated and they failed or they, they didn't took off as, as Lazada did. And at that point of time, I didn't have a good mental model. My mental model was I wanted to join an early stage company and it was fun to be in Asia. And that was basically the mental model that I had. With time, it, it got better. I, you know, my, my next work experience at EasyShip, it was two of my, of my friends that actually started the company. And I knew that they're, and one of them, I knew that is, is pretty strong. And I knew that I wanted to, to work with him again. And I understood just because of working in e-commerce, what kind of problem they're solved or we're solving. So this also decreases your risk of a company failing. If you know that the people behind it are strong and you understand the industry and you understand what the product is actually aiming to solve. With Revolut, it was actually funny because I was literally the targeted persona for Revolut. I really needed the product myself. I knew exactly about the business that we're in just because I really needed their product as a person who had bank accounts all over the world, who got hit with, the, with very high FX fees, whenever you're using overseas cards. And I knew I had to have a solution in order to manage my finances just by being an expat and changing my location every year. So this is also something that, that again, you know, was a, was an informed decision just because I knew what kind of product it is. And I knew that the industry is definitely set for some disruption, knowing how e-commerce has changed retail and 2017 finance was, was in some places in the world, financial services were not of, of very high quality. So if you have this combination of a big market with services that could be disrupted just by earlier companies doing things better and being more digitally savvy is also something that helped me make an informed decision that I wanted to be a part of this, this next wave. And same with crypto, you know, within FinTech, I wanted to be a part of a subsection of FinTech that I would make a bet that would be growing the fastest. And I was just lucky to join Kraken in early 2020 when crypto really took off again mm -hmm. and had this early bull run during the early COVID times. Was this calculated or... I mean, did you understand back then about the, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin halving and all these things, or you were just thinking, ah, I want to have a transition into crypto and it seems like a decent time to do that. Yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's definitely not an academic research type of quality of information that you're dealing with. You know, you're okay. making a calculated bet. You never know 100%. It's just, you have your own thesis for certain areas, for certain industries, and you're making a bet and there's always an element of risk to it. You just need to make sure that what is within your control, you can minimize this risk by either joining a company within this industry that you know it's going to be, it's going to be successful and having a pretty okay understanding about the industry. But did I know the technicalities and ins and outs about crypto before joining? Definitely not. It was just another bet that I wanted to make for myself that just turned out to be, it luckily turned out to be pretty okay. Yeah. And plus you worked for one of the only few exchanges that is still out there and still existing. Yeah. There, there yeah, was a well, lot of it, other great companies that you could have joined that ended up failing in the last year. Yeah. And that's the element of luck that you're joining. You know, you can, you're trying to make a decision based on, on the imperfect information that it's, that it's there for you. And, and yeah, sometimes it's just a bet that you need to make based on initial interactions with the team, the information that is public. And I agree. I was very lucky to join the right, right horse in the right race when it comes to Kraken and the same thing when it comes to Revolut. The earlier, the earlier, the times of early New Year banks in 2016 and 17, as you know, there, there are still quite a few. It's not only Revolut, there are others that we don't need to mention the names. They're also okay, but they're not as good as Revolut. Yeah. And they're not as successful as Revolut. And just by just applying the same logic where you know that there is a certain industry you wanted to be a part of, that they are solving your problems firsthand and you wanted to be a part of building that solution. 
I could have picked the wrong course in the right race. I knew that new banking is going to be big, but I could have joined a company that was not doing as good as Revolut. And that's pure luck. And that's what's, also, yeah. What's your definition of luck? Because some people say luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So basically it's not really luck. Yeah. Some people say, ah, oh, sometimes it's just, you know, even building a huge company, like there is a few elements that are just purely reliant on pure luck because you can't control everything. So like what's, how do you talk about luck a lot? How do you see this? Yeah. How do you see this luck thing? Yeah, I think definitely much closer to the, to your former destination where there's a lot of work you put in. You have a lot of good quality data points. You have a pretty okay judgment that kind of improves year on year or even more more frequently. And that allows you to make to make bets that are uh, that that carry inherently risk. Uh, but just because you're able to look at it from the right perspective and minimize its risk, it, it allows you to be set up for success. So, yeah, I was lucky. But then, as you know, and I, I almost as nice quote as you've mentioned, you also need to help your luck a little bit, and uh, and make sure that that you understand as much as you can when you're when you, an industry or a company when you're making a decision. And, and, and then, yeah, so it minimized the odds of failing. So there's always a risk with every decision you make. There was always a risk with every decision that I've made when it comes to companies that I've joined. There was a pure randomness element to it, but there was also element of me being, you know, looking at your quote that I was prepared and worked for meeting this luck thing. What are your key learnings from being in the driver's seat of three unicorns in the last 10 years? I think one of the, so as I mentioned before, and I'll repeat myself, but I think it's, it's definitely the hard work that you need to put in place. And there's no big company that does not have blood, sweat, and tears behind it. People that are work extremely hard. So I think this is one thing, and this is also what brings luck, I think. And I think Charlie Munger had this quote that you need to deserve your luck. And I 100% agree with this, that you just need to put in the work to ensure that you can look yourself in the mirror and say like, whatever was under my control, I maximized it. So I don't have any regrets looking back. So that's one thing. The second thing is uh, surrounded by people that are just as hardworking as you and that are, if possible, smarter than you in many cases, complement your skills. I think this is also crucial and, and the part of the companies that I see either myself or the ones that I've invested in that are doing extremely well, is just because very early on, they've understood that they need to find best people possible. And I think it's, it's tempting to just sometimes to fill spaces in companies and just to focus on other problems. But hiring is also, in my opinion, is one of the key problems they need to solve in their earlier stage companies. And, and the good framework that, that I've seen that I think makes sense is whenever you're making your hire, you should ask yourself if this is the best, the best person possible to be in this position. If this is literally the best person on earth to be, you know, a head of growth or a head of operations or any other role. And I think then trying to reverse engineer, how can I find this person? How can I convince this person to really join and help me build this company that I'm a part of? So I think this is the second learning that I've seen at the companies that I've been lucky, luckily a part of that each of them had been hiring some very high caliber individuals and people that were extremely smart and hungry and that were always willing to learn, which very nicely brings me to the third point. And I think this ability to be always learning and, and to always try to understand and adapt to new reality. I think the speed at which things are changing right now, even kind of further the thesis that your experience is great and serves as an additional data point, but the playbook on based on which you're operating should be ever evolving. It's not something that, you know, it, I don't think it ever should be a case, but I think even more now than ever, that the way that we're doing things should be changing quite rapidly and we should be iterating ourselves the way that we're doing work. Just because we are, we're suddenly able to use tools that it was, it was impossible to think even, you know, five or 10 years ago. And hence the way that you're working, it should be changing in order to be most efficient. So I think this ability to always learn, to always try new things and test new things and iterate your own playbook on what, whichever area that you're working in should be just something that should be, should be seen as one of the key factors to be successful. You know, two years ago or one, even one year ago, we would not even think about it, how open AI could change things in chat GPT. Probably 30 years ago, people would not think about how Google would, would change the way that we're working. 
So the way that we were working in early 1990s and, and early 2000s and 2010s is definitely different than the way that we would structure things now, just because of the tools that we have. So it's really important to understand how you can leverage technology and the tools that are out there in order to be more, more sufficient. Have you ever start, have you ever thought of starting your own company? Yes, many times. And I hope that this is going to come into fruition one day. Uh, I always have this, this urge to, to build things. I was lucky to be part of very successful companies where I was able to build things and the roles that I were, I was in were, were always by nature, very entrepreneurial, which I enjoyed a lot. But I hope that one day I'll be looking at this interview and thinking that, that this was a part of the journey for me to become an entrepreneur, because this was, this is part of the plan to be a founder one day, as I also come from a family of entrepreneurs and the kind of it's, I wouldn't say that it's in my blood, but it's definitely, you get exposed at a pretty young age, what being an entrepreneur really is. And by default, you look at it as a, as a way of living and way of working. So I hope that it's also going to be a default most for me, hopefully soon. Awesome. So you talked already about, I mean, I would like to talk a bit about kind of for people out there, how can they maximize their chances of mastering their career path? So you said 10 years ago, you wanted to be part of an, you know, a startup and in Asia, it would be fun. So that's kind of like the reason why you joined Lazada. So probably a bit of luck there, but then. You did it again. You joined Revolut pretty much when fintech was a new trend. So what made you realize that fintech was the next big trend? And then we can talk about directly what you've done after, which is Kraken. What made you realize that crypto would be the next big trend? And what are the similarities that we've seen? So, so people can kind of use these mental frameworks that you develop through time to make better decisions on what they should focus on next maximize their chances of having yeah. a successful career. Yeah, I think it's, it all started with my initial experience with Lazada and how you can see how e-commerce can basically change how retail really works. So you basically take an industry that is big and you can apply all the new tools that are out there and technologies in order to make it better and how fast you can grow a particular company just because you're able to create the best product that is out there. So I think the same, just because you're able to experience it firsthand. So everything, how e-commerce have impacted retail. And if I, it, you know, when I say it, it sounds, it sounds very cliche, but it was, it didn't look like that easy, you know, more than 10 or 15 years in Asia when it comes to e-commerce versus retail games. And right now the same mental model, you can actually apply to, to, to all other industries. When you see like an industry that has been fragmented, an industry that does, is not very, is not leveraging technology to the extent that it can. And you see that it's big enough. You see that there's definitely a potential for some players to, to make things 10 times better and 10 times cheaper. And I think this was the, this was something that I've seen how you can make things way better with Lazada and retail. And I've seen that financial services is a big industry. And I was first going to experience how terrible the experience is when it comes to managing a lot of things, finances. So just because you have this data point that, that show you how you can quickly adapt a new technology into, a, into an industry that is big and how successful you can become in a relatively short period of time has made me also think that it definitely the round for disruption in financial services is just around the corner. And this was literally just because I knew how fast things could look like and could change in e-commerce. So, so this is the reason why experiencing these problems firsthand, I knew that I wanted to be in fintech. I knew I wanted to build companies in big industries that are yet to be disrupted. And fintech was the way it came later compared to e-commerce. And crypto is a little bit of an extension of fintech because a lot of things that crypto promises is, has actually to do with, with fintech. So, so within fintech, the decision was if I had to, just like I picked an industry and I picked the right course in this race with Revolut. I wanted to stay in fintech, but if I had to pick something within fintech, that was my personal bet that would grow the fastest. It was, it was crypto. And I still believe that crypto has a lot of, a lot of potential ways to really enhance how we're dealing with everything, financial services from under the hood. And I think we're seeing that more and more with the recent events that are happening around the world. So <clears throat> yes, I remember being in crypto in 2019 was, even if you say it's not that early, it was actually still pretty early because, I mean, especially 2018, 19, you have this bear market, everything goes down 19, 95, 99%. People say it's a scam. 
Ethereum was basically nothing. There was pretty much nothing built on it or pretty much nothing proven built on it. So what, so why crypto back then, you know, because probably if you started early 2020, it means in 2019, you made your decision that, hey, the next thing for me is crypto. What attracted you there? And how did it, how did you even come across that and decided to take the leap and work full-time in crypto? The very first time when I actually got exposed to crypto was in 2017. And that was a time when Revolut launched crypto in, uh, in Europe. So it was a, a feature that allowed you to basically very easily buy and sell, buy and sell crypto. And that was, and that was the time when Bitcoin had its and other cryptos had its first kind of very serious bull run. And I think at that point of time, coin in 2017, it went up to, I think, 17 or $19,000. case. Yeah. So it was that ceiling that it, that it got into was 2017. And this is what got me exposed into crypto and what I really started to understand a little bit more about, about different cryptocurrencies and a little bit about different industry. And it was just a massive wave that suddenly within just a few months, everyone was talking about crypto. And as you rightly pointed out, then it kind of came down. And things got got back to to normal levels, or the bear market has started after this 20k has hit. But it, it was again a bet. It was something that when you during these few years, when you understood again what Bitcoin is, understood and read more things and spoke with people about what kind of role Ethereum could play in the ecosystem, you're thinking, well, I'm seeing how financial services are working right now. I'm seeing this infrastructure that is out there that had its early adoption cycle when it came up, and then it came crushing. And you know, just because it's a nascent industry that the odds are pretty high that it would come back and it would actually serve a purpose and solve a particular problem in financial services. So that was a leap that, that I made just because analyzing and understanding how the financial infrastructure work, how we've seen the infrastructure that Visa MasterCard has built, that Swift Network has built and all the legacy institutions and trying to connect the dots by understanding a little bit how this whole crypto thing works and how it could improve these things that we're currently having. Versus understanding the current business models that were out there in financial services. So, so obviously it would be very tough to say that I had hundred percent conviction that this is going to be the next big thing. But again, you need to make a bet that it's just well-informed and you're thinking that this could be potentially it. And this was the reason why I wanted to be involved and I wanted to build with in, in crypto. So what's the next big trend you identify? And you want to dedicate the next few years of your life. One thing that is interesting is catching these trends early, but also, I mean, I still think crypto is very early. There's still not that yeah. much that's actually useful out there that's been built. Yeah. Uh, I'm still a very big fan of, of crypto. And I th especially that we're seeing very clearly there are some particular use cases that, that crypto can solve in the financial services that, hasn't, that haven't been yet sold in financial services. I think what Bitcoin stands for, especially in the times of inflation or hyperinflation in some countries, is already a pretty solid use case on how crypto is definitely here to stay. You know, when I say I'm bullish on crypto, I'm also bullish on how money movement is going to be working and how payments are going to be working in the foreseeable future. Right now, whenever you make a payment, there's a few middlemen that are taking a cut from this transaction. Many times you're a seller or any merchant and you're accepting payments online or even offline, it's still, you don't receive the money right away. And they say it takes you time and the company that you're working with takes a significant cut of the payment. So until we're, we're reaching the moment where all the money movement is, is as fast and as cheap or free, just like sending a message, we're definitely not there yet. And I think, so this is one, one thesis that I have, and we you know that is basically supporting your statement that we're still early. We're still early when it comes to this change coming into financial markets and financial services. And I think that's the second thing that we're going to be more and more aware is, is this, the issue with trusting your money with the middleman. I think, especially what we've seen in the past few months is going to be perpetrating the, the thought of being in control of your own wealth and your own assets. So I think all the, the financial services that we're seeing that are going to be replicated with crypto, just starting from a notion that you're holding your own wallet and your own coins in your own wallet. And you basically all the services that you're interacting with are self-custodial. So you don't have to put all your wealth or any of the, uh, the cryptocurrency that you're holding with a, a trusted middleman. If you have an assumption that you trust no one and you want to be in, in charge of your own 
wallet and and with your own wealth. So I think this is also going to be something that we're going to be seeing more and more just because the distrust in the the regular financial markets industry is actually is going up and people are looking at alternatives. How are you seeing that thing yourself with your own investments? Especially today, it's very relevant. You don't even know if you can keep your cash at the bank. What's going to happen with it? Yeah. So I think where we say that we're still early, I think we're also still early when it comes to building the infrastructure that is going to be supporting that shift. Absolutely. So I'm definitely bullish on companies that are trying to build the new rails of how the money is going to be flowing, assuming that we replace all fiat with crypto. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's a scenario that it's highly unlikely that, that what we are seeing right now with fiat is going to be replaced by some sort of the crypto assets, whether it's going to be CBDCs or it's going to be Bitcoin or it's going to be some other. I think we can say that, that with some pretty high probability that this is where the future is going. Whether it's going to be five years, 10 years or 15 years, I think no one can really say. But if we assume that this is right, there's a, a ton of infrastructure that needs to be built in order to replicate what we're already having. And what we're already seeing in financial, with financial infrastructure, just doing that with, uh, with cryptocurrencies, plus solving new, new problems that this will bring. So I think when it comes to, when it comes to what I'm bullish on, I'm definitely bullish on the crypto infrastructure companies that are building the new rails. And I'm definitely bullish on uh, tools that are going to be help people building in this area. Just like we've seen, you know, just because of, of the new dominant players coming into industries such as e-commerce, this has led more and more companies succeeding in building infrastructure in these industries, as well as tools within these industries and helping people build and automate their work. So I think we've seen that with e-commerce, we've seen that with fintech, and we're going to see that more and more with, with companies that are going to be doing the same thing with crypto. So... <laughs> So we talked about making decisions, whether you are, you know, leading a company or whether you're investing, especially when you're investing early, you're making these decisions and you don't have data points or very few. So, so one of the most important things for that is to develop your own judgment. How do you develop judgment? I think, well, that's a very serious question. And I'm sure it's, it's not that easy to frame it as just one in, in one simple answer. But what helps you do it is, first of all, just being hyper logical and hyper analytical and really understanding what reality is. And just by assessing that and assessing all possible solutions, you're able to deduct really what could be the best ne- next decision to make. And then allowing, allowing that to, to basically see the results and iterate really quickly. I think the decision-making process of, of humans is not that different when you compare it to a machine learning algorithm. And in this case, you know, I think the key components are the quality of data that you have in order to make decisions, just like for a machine learning algorithm, the quality of data is important. And then iterating constantly on, on the judgment, making, it, making the quality of it higher and higher with, with each single iteration. So I think for humans, it's the same. Just being able to iterate really quickly and having the data points that are actually allowing you to make this decision on and then using logic based on these data points, really analyzing and, and making this bet on what do you think is the most probable best decision in this case. And then, you know, being very agile in understanding if, if whenever you get more data points, if this decision was really that good or if there are some more data points that you got just because you've made this decision that allow you to make this get, make a change and then be open to making changes constantly. I think what's important is to iterate with more good quality data that you have. And, and with all this process, your judgment is also going to get better and better. And so this is how I would, how I think about it and how I would approach becoming better at making good decisions. Another way that we both love to make better decisions is basically how to you, how do you optimize yourself for decision making with something that we call biohacking, biohacking. Yeah. So that's actually a very common theme amongst entrepreneurs and people who work long hours under huge pressure. And this theme is basically personal development. So how can I optimize my body and my mind and become the best version of myself to not only strive under pressure, but also make the best decisions. And I know you've been through this process. You're like me, a big fan of biohacking. So give us all your secrets. Yeah. Well, I think the beauty of, of this is that 
I don't think it's one solution that fits all. And again, like the approach that I think it's best here is just to try different things and see how they stick and then how they can actually improve the way that you're functioning. I have tested a lot of things for myself. I knew that there are certain tactics that I can use, but ultimately I think the best approach is just to look and test at each single one of them and to see how they basically impact your body and your, your thinking and, and your general well-being. So I've, I've developed this due to a, a pretty big need you know, to, to be able to operate at my highest for 24-7, you know, in pretty stressful environment. So I had to figure out a way on how I can always be full of energy, how I can always be very clear and how I'm making decisions. And this is what basically brought me to, to test a lot of things around my sleep, to test a lot of things around the type of exercise that I was doing. It also helped me force myself to test a lot of things related to my diet. And when you have a combination of these things and you see what works, what doesn't, this is how you kind of end up to a point where you're more and more efficient. So, so this is exactly how I thought about it. I just tried and tested a ton of things and see how it worked for me. What are a few things that you tried? Let's take the three categories. So diet, sleep, and exercises. What are a few things you tried you didn't work at all? And a few things you tried that really worked well that you'd recommend yeah. for people to say, oh, listen, like you can try all this stuff, but these kind of things are more likely to work. Yeah. So from the things that I, that didn't work for me, I think it could, they could work for some people for some time or some people for a longer time. The things that didn't really work well for me are on the sleep side. I thought just checking on, 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 on looking more on the number of hours that I sleep and not really looking at the at quality of sleep was, was something that I, that I got as a first learning. I would think, for example, that if I worked very late until let's say 1am or 2am, if I then get my eight hours of sleep, I would actually feel great. And, and what I've learned is that there's a certain cut of time for me that that I can get these, you know, six, seven, eight hours of sleep, but it has to start, you know, from 10 PM and everything that is beyond that is actually not working very well for me. So I would operate well, way better. If I go to sleep way earlier, rather than just try to push it and still get the same amount of, of hours in. So, so the hours of sleep would not be the necessary, the best KPI when it comes to, to really driving the best outcome from sleep. So this is what I've learned myself, that it's less about the hours, but more about making sure that you're going to sleep at the same time. And that this time is probably a little bit earlier rather than later. I have other things with, with, with sleep, but I think, I think this is probably one of the, one of the key learnings that didn't really work well for me. So a learning there is going to sleep at the same time of the day and figuring out which time is best. And for me, it's probably around 10 PM. Um, so that's the first one. When it comes to diet, I've tried keto. Keto helps to learn a little bit more about your body, but it's not something that I think for me, it was, it was sustainable in the long term. What, what keto also taught me is that how my body re reacts to, to carbs, how my body reacts to insulin. And it definitely helped me to understand these things a little bit more. But as a solution, I would not think that this is something that would be sustainable for me in the long run. And this is also something that kind of goes in the other direction, the things that I've learned that, that work, is that with keto, I also learned at the same time certain foods that I'm allergic to that are kind of basics of, of keto diet. Keto helped me understand that I'm allergic to certain foods and, and it actually impacted me positively. But the fact that if I was only looking at keto as a means to solve my problem, just by sticking with it, it wouldn't really, it wouldn't really help me achieve my, or being the best version of my, of myself. So this is probably the best, the best way that I, when it comes to optimizing, optimizing my, my diet, when it comes to exercise, I also thought initially that, that I didn't think that, or I thought at some point of time that this is the best way to, to exercise is to really double down on, on HIIT. So my hypothesis at that point of time would be that I really want to, I don't have much time. I need to squeeze in as much exercise as possible with, with a very short period of, of time. And that if I want to keep in shape and lose fat or keep my fat percentage in control, HIIT would be, would be beneficial. So I would do, for example, sessions of very high intensity sports, just like Muay Thai or HIT running very frequently during the week. And the problem that this has caused is that these exercises are very strenuous on the body and they also impact the levels of your cortisol. So you're kind of combining a very high stress environment, very intense work together with very high stress exercising. 
And this is something that, you know, theoretically, when you look at it at face value, it, it makes sense to solve the problems that I thought it would solve. But then when you put it in a larger picture, you test it out and see that your body is actually reacting. You, you feel more fatigue that you felt before, that it's actually something that, that you should adjust and, and do differently. So HIIT is great for some times in some situations, but as a hack to basically be as a default way of exercising, especially if you're already working in pretty high intensity environments at work, putting that much stress onto your body is not something that I found very useful. Yeah, so the high intensity interval training is a very interesting one because I do quite a lot of gym and at some point, two, three years ago, I was thinking, I'm just going to do one month break of gym or less and I'm going to try this high intensity interval training. But like, you know, I think probably four or five times a week. And after one or two weeks, I realized I was staying in bed all day and I was like down and I was like, what's going on? Like, I'm not sick. I, I seem like I'm kind of depressed. And then I kind of read online that there is this thing called you can basically burn out from high intensity interval because it's so strong on your body that if you just yeah. go too much, it's bad for you. So, so absolutely the, the combination of like the high stress already plus the stressing on your, on, on your muscle and body makes a lot of sense in terms of that. Yeah. We need to be careful. So I've learned about that the that. hard way. Yeah. I've learned that the hard way that I've seen, I've tested it out and I've seen the results and I thought that, well, maybe I can do something different and something better. And this is how, you know, I got from keto. I didn't, I stopped doing keto, but what I got from keto is how to really pick my carbs, right? If I have to go with, if I have to eat them. Second of all, what stayed with me is intermittent fasting. So I did say keto plus intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting still stayed with me at, at that point of time. And when it comes to, and when it comes to exercising, I think HIIT is good just for sometimes and not very often. And as a, basically one of the, elements of the, of the holistic exercise regime and not a, not something that it's go-to for every day or every second day as the main exercise, but just having that variety of, of different muscle groups and different types of exercises feels like in, combi in combining low intensity training with high intensity training, it felt something that, that works best for me. You told me also that you quit alcohol. And yeah. So, so that, that's an interesting one because people thinking about successful people think that successful people have an amazing life, party, go out. When you actually look at the life of successful people, kind of boring. They don't do much of those things that I'd say kind of normal people do, or they do it much less because they understand that this will impact their performance and their sleep and all that stuff. So can you tell us more about the alcohol part? which is a common theme sure. across people who are very successful that I talk to. They barely touch alcohol, actually. Yeah, so I wouldn't say that I quit it 100%, but I would say like when it comes to drinking it, I would really limit it to like very certain occasions that is just a social thing for me. And I would do it maybe, I don't know, once every half a year. So, so very, very rarely. And the reason for this is that alcohol is, is a drug. It's just a drug that it's, that it's legal and you can use it. It's harmful to your body, just like any other drug. It gives you this certain feeling that you can feel good after, just like any other drug. So, you, you know, it's actually a question. If you look at, for example, policies around drugs and you're thinking, okay, why is this drug that is called alcohol legal and why other drugs are not legal? And I'm anti-drug in general, but if you start understanding what it really is, that it's actually a legal drug, you, you ask yourself a question, if I want to be a best version of myself, is it okay? Is it actually bringing me closer to that or making me being further away? And just by the fact, also with age, you see the effects of alcohol coming up to you much closer. For example, after a few glasses of wine, you would next day, you wouldn't feel really hangover, but you would feel like it has an impact. It slows you down. And at this point of time, you're thinking that the benefits that it brings, it's are not actually that high compared to the cost that it has on the body. And what actually triggers this change even faster is that when you actually give yourself this few weeks without alcohol and you start noticing that your skin is brighter, that you start losing weight, that you feel better, that you have more energy. And these are the data points that you get from not drinking alcohol. It actually shows you that maybe it's actually better for your body to really limit it almost to zero. So this is, again, this is the process that I had. I didn't really feel great after drinking even small amounts of alcohol. I tested it out and see how it would work like without alcohol and actually I feel way better. So I, I try to limit as much as I can. 
and only in very certain circumstances that are, you know, some festive periods of weddings, etc. that I can have a toast for other people as a more of a cultural thing rather than a thing that would actually solve my problem when it comes to social interactions or de-stressing how some people look at alcohol. I think there are other better ways to solve each one of these things than alcohol. It's just very much embedded in our own operating system that this is just a way of dealing with, you know, celebrating successes, dealing with stress or many other ways that people would think about going out and drinking. And when you start questioning these things on like the habits that you have, and the mental models that were pre-programmed or were programmed throughout your whole life, it's good to retrospectively look at it and ask yourself if it really makes sense and test out a scenario where you're basically putting that away. So this is exactly what I've done. I've tested it out. It works better without. So I try to limit my consumption almost to almost to zero. The problem is it's a very social thing. So you have a bunch of friends. Hey, let's go out. Let's have some drinks. Or even in the business field, you know, you meet with other people. You do business by having these lunches or dinners and drink. So maybe in business, you can say, oh, listen, I'm not drinking. I'm drinking only on the weekend. And actually that might, you know, help other people also say no because they don't want to drink. Yeah. And they say, ah, oh, someone not drinking. I'm not drinking either. But what do you do with people or friends who tell you that you're boring, you know, plain boring? Do you have such friends? Did you change your friend circle? Because that's a big thing if you're in your, say, mid-20s, late-20s, early-30s. There's still a yeah. lot of people who are not on that same page and who might just say, Jakub is boring. Well, you just have to be a person that is not boring without alcohol. And <laughs> if you're still a funny guy without alcohol and you can still are a social person. And I'm, I find myself as an extrovert. So I actually like being around people and I don't need alcohol to have a good time. So, so yeah, maybe it's a little bit problem, bigger problem for people that are introverted, but I'm sure that there's other ways to, to solve it. And it's actually, interestingly, I think it can create even stronger bonds because when you're the guy saying, no, I actually don't drink. And then you explain the logic. You actually find that in, in circles that I'm around, there are many people that are actually the same. And that creates being anti this, uh, creates already a separate camp that you're getting closer to other people. And that just have been, you know, going through the same thought process. If they're happy that they can see someone that is actually testing things out and not thinking things for granted, and they're all trying to optimize themselves. So I think this can create even stronger bonds with people that are similar to you. So I think that's a good thing. And with people that, you know, still okay with drinking alcohol, I think it, it just, it's one of the things, it's just a solution that works for some people. It works very well for me, but it might not work very well for other people. Other people can drink alcohol and can be super high functioning and have no impact on their metabolism, on their health, etc. So it's just the thing that works for me. And I always explain to people when they ask a question that I just feel way better and I try to optimize my health and that I don't have problems with alcohol. It's just, I want to be functioning on, on the highest possible level. So whenever you explain the reasoning for this, I think the people that I've met, everyone kind of understands. And you will be surprised how many people actually go through the same kind of thinking. And that creates even a stronger bond when you're kind of Absolutely. both you know, approaching this problem in a similar way and trying new things and figuring out how you can be functioning at a highest level. And yeah, that can be even a better bond than compared to alcohol. What's the best advice you've ever been given? I think in general, I don't, I don't really like when people give like boilerplate advices. I think it's, there are very few of them that really work in, in different, in all the scenarios or all circumstances. So I think the best advice is to actually always think for yourself and use logic when it comes to making decisions and treat this as one of the best data points, just because people are it's very easy to give cheap advice to people. And people's circumstances, their data points and experiences are different. And just because something has worked for this person in this particular circumstances at a particular time, doesn't mean that it will work for you. So I think a good advice to give is just to, of course, seek feedback from other people, but ultimately try to make sense out of all these things and make the best decision possible. Just because there's, there's plenty of cheap advice out there. There's plenty of really bad advice out there. And there's very few of them that are actually universal, that's, that works in, in majority of circumstances. And I think one of them is always trying to be logical and try to understand reality. And just by understanding it, making sure that you apply the best judgment possible and iterate over, over time is probably one of the best mental models you can get and not looking for boilerplate advice from other people. 
What's, what's something that you believe in that most people would not agree with? I think, I think still that the future of, of money is, is on, on blockchain. I think it's, it's still something that it's, if you speak with people in crypto, we, we all kind of share the same belief that this is where the future is going. Many people that get involved in crypto are thinking about it as an easy scheme to make money where, you know, whenever you're getting into crypto, your first kind of, the first thing that you have in your mind is that not, this is going to change the way the finance works. It's just, maybe this is a, a good scheme for me to make money for an investment. So the investment part is probably much, much more important for people that are really understanding the underlying technology and, uh, and how it can change the way that we're perceiving money. So I think, yeah, quoting the classic, the future is, is on chain. And I think this is something that, that, that there are people within crypto that share the same belief when it comes to looking at the global population, you know, quoting another classic, we're still early to really understanding that the future is on-chain and definitely future of money is on-chain. If there was a summary or key takeaway that people should remember from today, what would it be? Yeah, that it's always good to, to deserve your luck. I, I think that's, that's the one, one thing that we've, we've talked about and that the importance of luck and, and the importance of, of trying to always make the best decisions possible and iterating over time. I think whether it comes to, you know, where you spend your time, where you work, where you invest your money, I think having that ability to be constantly learning and working hard and then being more exposed to luck, I think this is something that happened to me. And I'm sure that this is something that could be a takeaway from, from our conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Jakub. Where can the audience find you and connect with you? I think the best way is on LinkedIn. So feel free to, to find me on LinkedIn, connect with me and DM me, and I'll be very happy to revert and get back to, to, to people that do. Awesome. Thank you everyone for listening and watching. Please smash the like button and give us your feedback in the comments. Highlight will be posted on YouTube, Twitter, Substack, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And I'll see you all in the next episode.